Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our warmest thanks to Brady and Cam and Diana for leading us in worship. Isn't it so wonderful to have hymns and songs that not only draw our affection toward heaven, but are rich and didactic, meaning they instruct us, they teach us. Words matter. Straight lines of truth and intent. Using biblical language, that is so important. Words matter, do they not? And yet there's been quite a trend in the last 50 years, isn't there? Evangelicals have become masters of, well, making up our own sayings that are nowhere to be found in Scripture, aren't we? How many of us grew up with the phrase, heard phrases like, asking Jesus into our heart? Well, such a common phrase. Unfortunately, nowhere to be found in Scripture. Ought we to use biblical words for something as important as coming to Christ, for example? Do we ask Jesus into our hearts? Well, scripture says repent and believe. Repentance and faith. Now, does Scripture talk about the Holy Spirit or Christ living in us, coming to live in us? It does. Five times in Scripture, as a matter of fact. However, while it talks about Christ being in you five times, it speaks about you being in Christ 164 times. Where is the primacy of Scripture focused? It's focused on the believer being in Christ. Not only being in Christ, but indeed hidden in Christ. Paul tells the Colossians, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let us strive to use biblical language when speaking of biblical things. How many of you have heard the term accepting Christ? Have you accepted Christ? Praise the Lord. So and so accepted Christ. Again, a phrase not found in Scripture. In fact, it's a bit set on its head. We do not accept Christ. We are called to repent, and Christ accepts us. Of course, our pride would love it. Wouldn't it be nice if we were the ones doing the accepting? But the only person doing any accepting in Scripture is Christ. We are accepted into the Beloved. A person is not called to accept Christ. They are called to repent, and Christ accepts them. Now, do we know what folks mean when they say such a phrase? Of course. However, let us endeavor to use biblical language in an age where biblical literacy is at a shocking level, where the average churchgoer on a Sunday morning in America cannot articulate the gospel to a lost world. We must labor for biblical fidelity and literacy. We must use biblical language, stay away from cliches and catchphrases. How loose are we with our words, but how much do words matter? Beloved, God could have communicated with us in any way he chose, with endless possibilities to reveal himself, to impress his will upon us, to guide us any way he wanted. But he chose words. He chose specific words. Let us use those words to describe what he describes. That doesn't mean that we don't speak in relatable ways to people that have never encountered a Bible. Jesus spoke in parables all the time to convey spiritual truths. But our words matter. 
How about the lost being told that hell is an eternity separated from God? Stop that. Stop that. You just made their day. You're telling me that I get to spend an eternity away from someone that I don't even like? Excellent. Right on. Separation from this God you're describing sounds like heaven to the unregenerate, not hell. Not to mention, are those words correct? Is hell a separation from God? Of course not. We've taught this on this before. God is everywhere. R.C. Sproul said it best that hell is eternity in the presence of God without a mediator. God's love is not there. His compassion is not there. His mercy is not there. But his wrath and his anger are there in eternal abundance, being poured out night and day. And there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus. For those outside of Christ, there is no shield. There is no mediator of God's abiding wrath for those who are in the biblical hell. God is there. They shan't be so lucky to be eternally separated from him. How about one more that we hear from well-intentioned Christians? Ever been told that God will not give you more than you can handle? What? Who told you that? Who told you that? All the moms in there are shaking their heads. Uh-huh. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Do not confuse trials with temptations. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But trials? God is going to blow right past your abilities. He's going to blow right past your strength so we can get to His. So we can get to His. When we are weak, it is then that He is strong. There will be times in the life of every believer in working for our eternal good that God is both going to give and allow trials that blast past anything you can handle in your own strength. How else would we know his power and his strength if we could handle it ourselves? If God never gave us more than we could handle, we would never grow as a Christian. We would never learn to raise our hands in desperation and in pain, crying, Abba, Father. We would remain in spiritual infancy. Now, I realize that God is going to give you way more than you can handle. doesn't quite have the same appeal for a Hallmark card, but it is biblical. And it points to a far greater fountain of hope that at the end of my strength is the Creator's. Isn't it interesting how some of the worst-sounding news in Scripture often contain the most comforting truths? So, beloved, let us be biblical in our words, Harrison Hills, when we speak about the things of God. Use God's language and watch it work. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series, The Extravagant Life. And if you missed one or even both of them, I want to encourage you to go back to Facebook or Sermon Audio and listen to that. I was sharing with someone this week that this encounter with Mary, her anointing of Jesus, though I've known the story for years, I failed to grasp its depth and its beauty on so many levels. And many of you shared how this scene impacted your heart tremendously. It is not one to be missed. This was a scene which our Lord called so precious that wherever the gospel is preached in the future, this story will be told and remembered. 
Well, what a blessing to be a living, breathing fulfillment of that prophecy. As 2,000 years later, we are still able to swim in the beauty of Mary's worship. Learning what the extravagant life of a worshiper looks like. A life captivated and consumed with love for the Master. And the response of such worship by our Lord is not only to be our defender, to be our shield, but to hear him say, she has done a good thing to me. Or for us, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm almost sad to have completed this series with Mary already. What rich depth of application it brought to our lives. What a correction and an exhortation and an encouragement it is from the newest saint who's zealous for the Lord to perhaps those who are more seasoned that may have allowed their worship to grow stale or to allow a critical heart to creep in. Mary's anointing is the elixir, it is the oil of refreshing needed to rejuvenate that weary and dry heart. It has truly been a joy. Well, as you'll recall, once again, we've been in the literary Markin sandwich. If you're visiting with us for the first time, that may be a new, a new term, but don't worry. Lean in for understanding, press in, you'll catch on fast. While we've so been enjoying the meat in between the bread, the rose between the two thorns, and Mary's anointing of Jesus, we must come today to the second half, that second piece cut from the bread of darkness, of treachery and deceit, the very plotting of the greatest act of evil, the greatest crime of all humanity being hatched. Today we depart the, the beauty and the fragrance of spikenard, and we'll come face to face with the ultimate human villain in Scripture. A name that even the world associates with betrayal and evil. It's almost a bit of a literary whiplash going from such beauty to such darkness. And that is one of the challenges of Mark and his style, isn't it? It's his abrupt and his truncated writing. It's often like, it's like downshifting to second gear on the highway. I get that. But of course, it is with great purpose. Because the darkness before and the darkness after only make the light brighter, more brilliant, more beautiful, and so it will. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text this morning, Mark 14, 10 and 11. Mark 14, 10 and 11. However, I'm going to read for us verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 together for you to sequence so you can hear what the two pieces of bread sound like when they're put back together. We're going to unsandwich the sandwich, so to speak. So beginning with verses 1 and 2, then down to our text, verses 10 and 11. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival... Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. And down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wade this morning with great joy into one of the darkest areas of Scripture. Lord, we come before you as a needy people, as ones who are desperate for you, for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to illuminate the Scripture, Lord, that we might understand, Lord, that we might grow thereby, that we might know the milk 
and the meat of the word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet every need that has come here this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that the arrow would find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, one of the greatest challenges in the study of a man like Judas is it forces us into some very uncomfortable topics, some doctrines and truths that must be contended with and faced head-on if we are to understand the role that this man played in God saving a people unto himself. We are forced to contend with the doctrine of evil, its role in God's will, its wielding and its purpose. We run headlong into divine determination into sovereign election as we read how Scripture describes this man. And we must necessarily dive into the truths of total depravity or total inability. If a man can spend three years at the feet of Jesus and not be saved and not be changed, what does that tell us about man? And to that end, you may notice the title of our message today, A Vessel Prepared. Now, Judas has been described in many ways in Scripture. He's been called a devil, a betrayer, a traitor. But one title speaks to a man like Judas and men like him that encapsulate the truths we must contend with to understand these difficult and unthinkable scenes. Judas and men like him are vessels prepared. Now, to understand this title, if you would put your finger in Mark with me, and turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Let's hear those pages turning, saints. Romans 9. Romans 9. If you would turn with me, we're going to examine this title of a vessel prepared. Romans 9, beginning with verse 13. Now, we're going to walk through this quickly but systematically. There are mountains of doctrine and truth in this portion of Scripture, but we're going to blast through it quickly, beginning at verse 13. Paul writes, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Paul is anticipating the rebuttal here, isn't he? Hey, if God hardened his heart, how can he still find fault with him when God is the one who hardened his heart? And Paul heads that kind of thinking right off at the pass. Verse 20, verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Judas, like Pharaoh, like others in Scripture and through history, were vessels prepared for destruction. A lump of clay fashioned for dishonorable use. Now we're going to speak much more on this as we dive deeper in, but for now I want us to have that framework in our minds as we move forward. Because truly in all matters, not only throughout Jesus' ministry, but throughout Passion Week that we're in, we have labored to demonstrate the complete command and control of God through it all. That Jesus was not swept away by the blind wrath of a mob, but that he was bruised by his father, and it pleased the father to do it. Jesus' ministry is not a good idea gone bad or a tragic end. From Genesis, God has ordained the means of saving his people and has used wicked men from the beginning to move that plan down through history. And we will see that on brash display today in our text. So turning back with me, beloved, to Mark, Back where your finger was. Let us look to our text once again this morning, beginning with verse 10. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Now pause there for a moment. Let us examine this man, Judas Iscariot. What do we know about him? What does his name tell us about him? Well, first off is his name. Judas is the Greek form of the name Judah. He was the son of Simon called Iscariot. Now, his last name means man of Cariot. This is named after Cariot Hezron. If you go about 15 miles south of Hebron or a little over 20 miles south of Jerusalem, you're going to come to that village. That's the birthplace of Judas. Now, why do you care about that? Why do you care? Because that means that Judas was the only disciple who was not a Galilean. From the beginning, there is a separation there. Oh, but a tiger cannot hide its stripes forever. 1 John 2.19 declares this, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they all are not of us. Scripture tells us that Judas was a thief, that he stole from the money bag. Greed consumed him. Love of money dictated the path and the choices of Judas's life. Of course, Paul exhorted Timothy in his first letter, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, that would be putting it mildly for Judas, wouldn't it? The pain that would pierce Judas was not only known, but was known from the beginning, even prophesied by David himself. And Peter declares this to brothers in the upper room in Acts 1. Remember, that's where Matthias has been selected to replace Judas. Peter says this, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, what pain, what pain is going to pierce Judas through for his love of money and his treachery? Peter goes on. Peter goes on. 
Now this man acquired a field, Judas, with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Sorry, parents. The Bible. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, here's David, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And once again, that's a beautiful reminder for us that all is to plan. A vessel has been prepared in the person of Judas, using his betrayal, using his greed and his love of money. No one made him do that. God tempts no man to sin. Judas walked this way by his own choice. Much more on that as we move forward. But looking back to our text, we get another well-known descriptor of Judas. Back to verse 10. Who was one of the twelve? Now, we must pause there. Now, first to note, as much as I love the LSB translation, I love the Legacy Standard Bible, they missed this. There is a definite article here, the, in the Greek. Meaning it reads, Judas Iscariot, who was the one of the twelve. You hear the difference there? They're marking him out. He was the one of the twelve. Mr. Notorious. It's the only place, by the way, where we see this kind of definite article usage anywhere in the New Testament. Only here. But still, the truths that are swimming in this statement are immense. Judas was the one of the twelve. Judas walked and talked with Jesus for three years. No one was exposed to better teaching and better preaching than Judas. No one had more illumination and light concerning the truth of Christ than Judas. Of this phenomenon, Dr. John MacArthur, he writes, quote, Only 11 other men in all of history had the intimate personal relationship he had with the incarnate Son of God. No man has ever been exposed to God's perfect truth, both in precept and example. No man has been more exposed firsthand to God's love, to his compassion, power, kindness, forgiveness, and grace. No man has more evidence of Jesus' divinity or more firsthand knowledge of the way of salvation. And yet in all of those three indescribably blessed three years with Jesus, Judas did not take so much as the first step of faith, close quote. Judas' intimate exposure to Jesus, being one of the twelve, highlights major doctrinal truths that we must grapple with and contend with. Judas was a free, responsible, moral agent. And what is equally true? That God is sovereign. But what does it mean that man is free? that he is an accountable free agent, and that Judas, our vessel prepared for destruction by God's sovereignty, is accountable for his treachery. Understand, beloved, when we say that man is free, biblically it means that man is free to choose that which is determined by his nature or by the laws of nature. For example, the laws of nature prohibit you from flying. You can't fly, but that does not mean you're not free. 
It means the agent, the man, is only free to do that which his nature or the laws of nature allow him to do. So what is man's nature? What is Judas's nature? Romans 8, 7 and 8 tell us that the natural man is unable to submit themselves to the law of God. His nature does not allow it. In other words, yes, you are free, free to do what's in your nature, free to do what comes naturally, and that is to sin. The natural state of fallen man is not to submit to the will and the law of God. It is to rebel and sin against God. That is what the lost are free to do. And thus they are spiritually dead. They are inanimate in their sins. And thus because they are dead in their sins, John 6.44 tells us that they are unable to come to Christ unless the Father draws them to himself. Judas, just as the natural man, still acts freely in respect to his nature. Romans tells us that he freely and actively suppresses the truth in unrighteousness because his nature renders him unable to do otherwise. God is sovereign. He has prepared vessels for destruction, a lump of clay to be fashioned for dishonorable use. Yes, God is sovereign, and man is responsible as a free agent. Both are equal truths, perfectly demonstrated and harmonized with great clarity throughout Scripture. To help us further understand, we've heard it said before that they cannot come, that they are unable to come because they will not come. That disobedience is the cause of inability. I remember a few years ago, I shared an analogy here from Jim Oreck, a professor over at Southern Seminary, as as he attempted to explain this difficult truth, a parable, if you will, to describe how human inability is caused by human disobedience. What an excellent time to share that again. Dr. Oreck writes this quote, Suppose a man says to his sons one morning, Boys, I want you to be sure to mow the grass today. And also, I poured a section of concrete in the sidewalk early this morning, and the cement is still wet. Stay out of it. And one more thing, your mother has told me that you boys are wearing your headphones all day, and this makes it impossible for her to get your attention when she needs you. So don't wear your headphones today. I'll be back this afternoon. And later that afternoon, when the father returns, guess what? (laughs) The grass has not been mowed, and he sees his sons standing in the fresh concrete, which is now hardened around their feet, And they're wearing their headphones. And his wife meets him at the door and she says, Oh, I've not been able to get those boys to do a thing today. They will not answer me when I call. He goes outside to where the boys are standing in the concrete and he motions for them to take off their headphones. They take them off and he says to them, Boys, I thought I told you to mow the grass today. And they answer, Dad, we couldn't. We were stuck in this concrete, which is hardened around our feet, and we can't move. And their dad says, and your mother tells me that she's been calling you, and that you haven't answered. And they answer, Dad, we have not heard her, honest. We've been listening to our headphones all day. Their inability to obey and their inability to hear are a result of their disobedience. 
the person of Judas, like the person of Pharaoh, demands that we look to and we answer these difficult questions. How can God form a vessel for destruction, then judge that same vessel for the choices they made? That question is the very reason for nearly the entire chapter of Romans 9, to explain such a beautiful antinomy. An antinomy is a, are two equal truths with a seeming contradiction that are, are held together in perfect tension. That God is sovereign and man is responsible is an antinomy. Two seemingly opposite truths that are both necessary that are held in equal biblical tension. And that Judas was one of the twelve. That he lived and he breathed under the master for three years speaks ever so powerfully to these truths. Someone does not go to hell because they lacked opportunity to repent. Hell is the natural course of men unless God intervenes and stops them in their tracks. Romans 2.12 tells us this with crystal clarity. Perishing is the natural state of man. God is not electing someone to damnation. They chose that themselves. It is the natural course of man. The divine mercy of election comes into play. In those he stops in their hell-bound race. Those whom he chooses for his own reasons and draws them to himself. God is God. He may do as he will. The clay does not question the potter. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God, who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And oh, we do not like to hear that in our modern culture, do we? We say, that's not fair. How is that fair? Remind the world, the last thing they should ask for is fairness. Fair sends everybody to hell. We are to cry out for mercy. Mercy is begging that God not be fair with us. Please, God, whatever you do, do not treat me fairly. The psalmist praised the Lord that God was unfair to him in Psalm 103.10, singing, He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Whew. If you are a Christian, let us praise the Lord that life is not fair, that he has not dealt with us according to our sin. Saints, we cannot grasp Judas as a vessel prepared for destruction if we trip and we stumble over a misguided concept of fairness. Equal fairness means everybody getting exactly what they deserve. Praise the Lord that life has been so unfair to the Christian. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. We glory in the unfairness of God. And today, fairness means equal opportunity, but that's not biblical fairness. Biblical fairness is each getting what they deserve, good or bad. That's fair. We all deserve the bad. 
But praise the Lord for interceding and stopping our hell-bound race, rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What other implication does it carry that Judas was the one of the twelve? What other implications does Judas' lengthy and extended proximity to Jesus and exposure to such light and truth have? How many of us know that we are accountable for the amount of light we have received? Understand that hell as a a place of divine judgment is not one size fits all. No matter what, it is a horrific place of eternal suffering. But scripture makes it clear there are degrees of punishment. Scripture tells us that divine justice in hell will be specifically fitted to the guilt of each individual offender. Jesus declares in Matthew 10, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Again in Matthew 11, But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus again demonstrates this in Luke 12. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Even the writer of Hebrews gets in on it. Tells us Hebrews 10 verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of God? Of grace. Now, while we don't know how that will be meted out, we know that the capacity for suffering is going to be higher or lower based on one's exposure to the light. What does that mean for Judas? What terror awaited him? Well, the answer, as Scripture says when describing him, it would be better if he had never been born. What does that mean for everyone listening this morning? I wonder how many Christmas and Easter casual Christians there would be if they knew the bill, the cost that was being racked up for every gospel message they heard. Every exposure to the light raises the stakes higher and higher. That's the gospel truth. If you would harden your heart this day, it would be better to leave now. And leave quickly before one more word of truth is held to your account. I know these are challenging topics, beloved. But this is Judas. (laughs) We're dealing with the greatest treachery in history. It's not going to be sunshine and roses. Joel Osteen will not be preaching this text anytime soon. Back to our text. Back to our text. Then Judas Iscariot, who was the one of the twelve went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now, one critical event occurred here. Now, we're going to need to rotate the gospel diamond to see. Luke records this exact event as well. Luke 22, no need to turn there. I'll read it for you. It reads, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. 
for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Satan entered Judas. Judas was not merely demon-possessed. He was possessed by Satan himself, bringing in the big guns. This isn't the hired help going on here. Why? Why? Why did Satan enter Judas at this point? What is Satan's objective in doing this? He's inhabiting Judas for a reason. Now, many would say that Satan was trying to kill Jesus, trying to give demonic speed to the crime of the ages. This is a very common error in understanding that tragically misses one of the main plots and threads of Scripture from the beginning. Did Satan want Jesus marched up Calvary, put on a cross, and crucified? Absolutely not. You must understand that everything Satan has done up to this point is to keep Christ from going to the cross. From the moment the Proto-Evangelium, being the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, when God declared that his own son, the virgin-born seed of the woman, would engage Satan in a pitched battle over sin and bring him to defeat, that he shall bruise you on the head and he shall bruise him on the heel. Since that time, Satan knew the very plan of God and one goal, to thwart it, to thwart it. Speaking of the knowledge of Satan, one commentator writes this, quote, Did Satan know that he was going to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Of course. Did he understand all the Old Testament prophecies perfectly well? Did he understand all the Levitical sacrifices point to the death of the one sacrifice, the Son of God? Did he know he came to save his people from their sins? Did he know the shadow of the cross was over his entire life, of course? Did he know that the satisfy, that was the satisfying atonement? Christ was the satisfying atonement that God had planned? Yes. Did he know that if Jesus died on that cross, his kingdom and dominion would be forever destroyed? Yes. We must understand from the very beginning, Satan had one goal, and that is to stop Christ, the Messiah, from going to the cross. Whatever the cost, the cross must be stopped. And it began right away. Cain killed Abel. 1 John 3.12 tells us we must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Stop the cross. Fail. Seth will be born to Adam and Eve. Seth in the line of Jesus. Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. Messiah is going to come through your line. Kill the Israelites. Kill the Jews. Stop the lineage. Stop the bloodline. Stop the cross. Fail. You cannot destroy the Israelites. Nation after nation has tried. Esther, a decree went out to destroy all the Jews. Can you hear it? Stop the cross fail. Haman was hung instead. Herod, kill all the baby boys under two years old. Stop the cross. Fail. Consider the entirety of Jesus' temptation by Satan all the way back in Mark 1. What was the entire goal of that encounter? 
Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The pathway to the cross was humiliation. The temptation by Satan, in a nutshell, was for Jesus to pick up what was rightly and divinely his as king. The Son of God does not deserve to live like this. Take up what is rightfully yours, Jesus. Do that. Abandon your path of humiliation, and you'll never go to the cross. Stop the cross. That is the satanic drumbeat in all of history. In Mark 8 and Matthew 16, when Jesus tells them that he must go to the cross, that he will be killed by the chief priests, and on the third day rise again, Peter, he pulls Jesus aside, doesn't he? He says, no way, Lord, this is going to happen to you. What is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. The voice of Satan is, you will not go to the cross. Without, when Peter thought to stop the cross, he spoke the very heartbeat of Satan. Even to the very end, as Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew 27, the people who were going by shouted blasphemies at Jesus. They shook their head at him. Save yourself if you're God's son, come down from the cross. Last-ditch effort, last attempt, fail. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So, beloved, why did Satan enter Judas here in our text? Press in for understanding. What is Satan's goal? Stop the cross. Does Satan know exactly when that is to happen? Absolutely. Did we not teach the 77s in Daniel? Didn't we? We got our calculators out, didn't we? We knew exactly when as well. It will be the 14th of Nisan. Jesus will be the Passover lamb. This day, this time, Satan knows it's coming. He can observe. He can read. He can listen. He knows scripture front ways and sideways. He can do the math of the 77s as well. He knows. We must thwart God's plan. What is God's plan? I'm going to kill my son. And it's going to please me to bruise my only son. And through it, I'm going to destroy Satan's kingdom and save a people unto myself. So, beloved, if God's plan is for Jesus to die at this time, at this place, set from the foundation of the world, what is Satan's goal right now? You ready for this? It's for Jesus to live. I have tried since Genesis to take him out. I have spilled blood in the wars of nations to stop this bloodline. But now that it's here, the time is drawing, the 14th of Nisan comes, the Passover lamb must not be slain. It must be stopped. So what's the plan? How would betraying Jesus which is what Judas is leaving to go do, how would turning him over to the chief priest stop Jesus from being killed in accordance with God's plan? Seems like that would be the way to kill Jesus. Ah, not so fast. Listen to the words of the chief priests and tell me the theme that you hear. Listen, 
Mark 14, 1 and 2. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. Luke 22, 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Matthew 26, 2 through 5. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Yet another way that Satan knew. Then the chief priests and the elders who were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. What is the main obstacle to killing Jesus? The crowd. The people. Many thought Jesus a prophet. With Lazarus having just been raised only two miles up the road in Bethany, that just happened. And testifying loudly about it, people were very interested in this Jesus fellow. You certainly can't kill him. Remember the population of Jerusalem during Passover? It swelled to about three million. Might that be enough to cause a problem? We want to do it by stealth. Kill him quietly. Don't get the crowds involved. And they're not wrong. The chief priests were spot on that this could cause a riot. If not for the fact that we like this Jesus fellow, we just don't want you executing someone on the most holy day of the year. Thank you very much. So what is Satan's plan? Why possess Judas and betray Jesus? Because the chief priests were right. If the Sanhedrin goes and arrests Jesus, logic says the crowds will rise up and they'll stop the execution. They'll stop the cross. If that means saving Jesus' life, fine. Stop the cross. God the Father saying, my son shall die. And Satan saying, no, he won't. Save the life of Jesus to thwart the plan of God. Stop the cross at all costs. Use the crowds. Make it public. Get it out there. Start a riot. Yes. Satan wanted Jesus dead. All the way to the point God said he would die. Now I want him to live. Behold one of the greatest ironies in all of history. Final verse, beloved, verse 11. Verse 11. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now the money, 30 pieces of silver to be exact. And this transaction with Judas was prophesied all the way back in Zechariah. 11 verse 12. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, some may wonder where this amount keeps coming from. What is it about 30 shekels of silver? Well, it comes from Exodus 21:32. It reads, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver is the price of a dead slave. 
That's a whole other message by itself, beloved. Mark records here that they were glad. The word here denotes that they were happier inside than they even let on. They were positively gleeful. Beloved, Scripture records Judas' actions for us for a reason. God tells us why he allows such men to commit the acts they do, why he allows evil to sometimes seem like it has the upper hand, why the wicked seem to prosper, the psalmist says. But what if God, Paul told us, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why does he do it? Why does he allow Judas' wicked acts to go forward? It's simple, to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. But beloved, Paul didn't stop there. (laughs) Yes, we have our Judases. We have our pharaohs. We have our vessels who are fitted, who are prepared for destruction. But that's not the end of the story. There's so much more than that. Very next verse. Yes, you did it to demonstrate your wrath. Yes, you did it to make your power known. But why do that? Next verse. And he did it. So to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a vessel of mercy. And you are a vessel of that mercy that we might make known the riches of his glory. That's the point. That's the point of it all. That's why you're here. That's why he saved you before the foundations of the earth, that we might gather this day Raise our hands, lift our voices to such a merciful God. When we had no thought for him, he interrupted our hell-bound race. And he made us vessels of mercy. He made us carriers of grace. If you're listening this morning by God's sovereign hand, and that mercy and that grace are not a reality in your life, if you've never come in repentance and faith to Christ, no matter how long, You sat in a church pew. Today is the day. Cry out to God. Make me a vessel of mercy. Prepared beforehand for your glory. His arms are open. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, the cry of our heart this morning is that we be vessels of mercy. Lord, we thank you for showing us the vessels of destruction. Lord, your sovereign hand over them. Lord, that you allow that which you hate to accomplish that which you love. It has always been so. Heavenly Father, as we bring our time of worship, of corporate worship to a close, we ask, Lord, that you would seal this message in our heart. Lord, that it would go down deep, that we would chew it over and turn it over in our hearts this week as we go about the lives you've called us to. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.